Hey, CJ. Hi, how are you? I'm good, and uh, thank you for thank you for doing this. I've been waiting quite a long time to talk with you, and you've been with Gavin and doing Oprah Machine and and doing just working with him for a long time. Um, so it's nice to finally talk to you. Do you want to give a, a brief introduction about yourself, and then we can get into some cases? Sure. Uh, my name is CJ Griffin. Uh, I am a partner at Pashman Stein Walder and Hayden in Hackensack, New Jersey. Uh, we're you know a, a full-service law firm, but my practice area is generally media law uh, with an intense focus on the Open Public Records Act. So I represent requesters of all sorts in Open Public Records Act, OPRA, as we call it, litigation. So I represent newspapers, um, online bloggers, citizens, activists, nonprofit organizations, um, you know, all, all types of requesters and helping them gain access to government records under OPRA. Okay, and so do you do other cases aside from Oprah? Yeah, the bulk of my work is Oprah. Um, I provide uh, some guidance and other work for, on, on other general media law uh, topics like defamation and some First Amendment stuff. But, um, you know, I'm developing that area of my practice, and for the past three years it's mostly uh, been public records work. Okay, and how did you get into that or aware of that? So we have, as a firm, for a couple of decades, represented the Bergen record, the record. Um, and we always, in the past, we had represented them uh, in other areas of law, um, some other media law, some employment law, corporate law, that sort of thing. And at one point, they had a need uh, for someone to help them with an Oprah case, and I volunteered to do it. Um, and it's, I, I found it really fascinating. And I always, you know, I sort of wanted to always be a journalist, and then I decided to be a lawyer instead. So I, I reached out to some of my journalist contacts and said, "Hey, I'm, I find this interesting. If you need any assistance in the future, let me know." And from there, it just sort of took off. Uh, and then within, you know, a few months, I was starting to do it full time. Okay, and Oprah has the fee shifting, which is why don't you describe what fee shifting is? And I'm curious. I guess you don't get paid directly by clients that much, and you, you know, you obviously must choose cases knowing that they're good cases because you want to be paid. So, can you talk about describe fee shifting briefly, and then? So, fee shifting means that the the legislature has decided um, that in the in this particular case, the person the the plaintiff, the requester who wins, is entitled to have the government agency pay their attorney's fees. The general rule in, in New Jersey and almost every state in America, it's called the American rule, is that whoever files litigation, you're responsible for your own attorney's fees. But there's some areas of law where the courts have decided that there's a, a public interest um, in having a fee shift, uh, and it's generally cases um, where there's a strong public policy um, that mandates that, such as discrimination cases. Um, and that's to help ordinary people be able to find lawyers, because if you had to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to be able to sue someone for discrimination, you probably wouldn't sue. And we want people to be able to vindicate their rights. And so the same is true for Oprah. Um, most people wouldn't be able to afford to shell out hundreds or thousands of dollars um, in order to get access to a public record that, that they want or need, but yet they're entitled to them. So the legislature put the fee shift there. So 
You're correct. The bulk of my cases, especially for um, citizens, are done on a fee-shifting basis. Um, so I take the case, and I agree that I am the one bearing the risk, um, and that if I win, the agency is going to pay my fees. Um, often that's a negotiated amount, or the court will order the amount of fees. And if I lose, then then I write off those costs, and the requester doesn't pay anything. Um, and, you know, that helps the, the little person be able to fight the government <laughs> for records. Uh, it, it levels the playing field. Well, obviously it's working out because you're, this is the main thing of what you do. Are, well, are there any? Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, um, you know, unfortunately there's a lot of agencies that just don't comply with the law very well. So we do have to, um, you know, challenge that. Um, and, I, and in terms of, you know, you asked the question about, how I measure which cases to take. So I, I do. I, I would never file a frivolous litigation because obviously I, the court rules prohibit frivolous litigation, first of all, but also because I would not get paid. I would lose that case and then there would be, I would not get paid. So I measure every case. Some cases to me are clear cut. They're, you know, we should win. We have a strong argument. Um, but there are cases that where the, the law is really unclear or where it's never been litigated before, where there is some risk involved. It could go, you know, 50-50 either way. Um, and I take that risk. And so we've litigated some cases of first impression, knowing that we could lose, but hoping that we can lawyer it really well and persuade the court to grant access to the records. Um, there, there's, speaking of uh, fighting, having to fight, um, there was a recent thing with the Middlesex County Prosecutor's Office where they fought the fee shifting pretty nonsensically um the twenty two thousand dollars you know yes. in, in fees and um could, mm-hmm. could you talk yes. about that yes, you know that's one of those cases where I didn't really understand their position um and sometimes what's frustrating because you know i'm I'm an attorney who makes my you know this is my career and I make a living doing this work at the same time I'm also a taxpayer so um, it's frustrating when I see agencies unnecessarily running up the bill so that was a case where they didn't even file their fee app their fee opposition to my uh, their opposition to my fee application uh, in the lower court on time they they blew that deadline a couple of times and then um, they didn't really substantively oppose it um, they were, they just seemed to take a position that it was kind of unfair that they'd have to pay it. Uh, and then, you know, they appealed and then we won in a, in a pretty easy decision and then <laughs> they had to pay the fees for losing the appeal too. So it was that, that we, we, we obtained redacted records. Um, and so, <laughs> uh, but what the relief that we sought was in our complaint was we said, you broke the law by withholding the entire record that Oprah expressly says that government agencies are supposed to redact uh, exempt portions of records and release the rest of it. So we said, give us the record um, or the portions of the record that are not not exempt, and that's exactly what the court ordered. They they permitted some redactions, but um, that you know we got the relief, the exact relief that we wanted, and they tried to argue that you know somehow if you receive it in redacted form, you're not entitled to these. Because the records were redacted, like you fought to get the records, and then they gave you the records, but they were redacted, and so what they said, as I understand it, is that because you didn't get the full records, it wasn't a full victory, it was a partial victory, and therefore they didn't owe you the fee shifting. 
Yeah, that's what they tried to argue. But, you know, we did actually say uh, in our claims for, for relief that we wanted, re- you know, properly lawful, re- lawfully redacted records. So, um, okay. you know, par- there are times where the courts will consider you partially prevailing and only partially entitled to fees, but that's generally um, when you're seeking um, – Maybe you file an OPA request that has requests for things and you file a suit and you seek for those things and the court says you get one of them. Well, you're not going to get 100% of your fees generally um, if you only receive one, although there could be circumstances where you do where the bulk of the briefing was just about that one issue and that one issue was the most important issue in the case. You can still receive all of your fees, but you know, just receiving a, a redacted record uh, does not render you <laughs> does not in any way negate your your right to fees, especially when that's what you're seeking. Right, and I mean, pretty much, almost, I would think the vast majority of public records that you get are redacted in some way, at least in a minimal fashion. So to say that that's a parcel, anything is is yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, most records will have. <laughs> I wouldn't say most, but many records, many, will will have some level of redaction to them. Okay. Um, so the Burlington County Prosecutor's Office has been an interesting case. I mean, this is that's pretty that's one of the more brazen things that I've ever heard of, um, of you know trying to avoid the fee shifting and that nonsense. Um, but I'm I'm curious of blatant violators. Like the law changes, I and mean, clearly the fee shifting is supposed to be you know, a non-issue that's already been decided, but yet these guys blatantly try and push that. And I'm sure that there's instances all over the place of bodies, the law is clear, but they're still trying and pushing it over and over and over again. And I wonder, like, does it get easier to to prosecute those cases? Like, does the court just say, this is ridiculous, why are you doing this, and start to penalize them more strongly? Or is this just a constant sort of maintaining maintenance kind of a thing? You just have to keep, this is what it's about. They just keep fighting it. You just keep litigating it, even if it's part of the law. So I know I sort of put a lot in there, but just take what you think. I'm curious. Yeah. So Oprah doesn't necessarily have a, the ability of the court to to penalize per se. Uh, for example, the court's not going to say, oh, this is the fourth time you've, you know, violated the law, so we're going to give them extra attorney's fees. It's not a damages type of thing. There is a provision in OPRA where you can um, impose a willful violation penalty. It's a, a it's, I can't remember the exact amounts, but there's penalties for a first, second, and third amount. I think it's like 500, 1,000, and then 1,500. I've never actually um, gone after those um, personally. Um, and it says if you knowingly and willfully violate the statute, then you know you could be per- the custodian or the employee who did it could be personally liable for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would say when I first started practicing Oprah, Clients would come to me all the time and want to pursue that, um, and and w- what I've learned is that most of the, the overwhelming majority of the time when there's a denial, um, several it's one of several things. One, the custodian and government employees might not have anything to do with it. It could be um, the, the the politicians that run the town and the attorney providing the legal advice not to release it. Um, and even where a government employee or the custodian is involved, I find that it's generally not, you know, purposeful or willful, but sometimes just 
um, in you know, I hate to say incompetence, but you know, negligence, not familiar, being not not being familiar with the law. Um, sometimes it's laziness and not wanting to do the work to get the records. Um, but it, it, most of the times, I, I don't think it's willful. There certainly are some times when it's clear that it's willful, um, but it's not always the custodian and that's the one that's, that, that's being that way. There's often someone else <laughs> that's yeah. uh, dictating yeah, actually, the response. Yeah, actually, you remind me of uh, I, did, uh, I did some investigative journalism for around a year, and I noticed that at least in one case, and it seemed, I mean, it seems, I wouldn't be surprised if it was pretty prevalent, but I think custodians are put into a very difficult position sometimes, that they have to disclose everything, but I think at least in some cases, there's a lot of pressure on them to basically not follow the law, and it puts them in a really terrible position. Yeah, that's my experience. I mean, I've done some, I've done a presentation or two for custodians, um, both clerks and, and like police records custodians and I've had lunch with custodians. Um, and, and my experience, and I interact with a bunch of them because I, in addition to doing litigation, I have some clients that hire me to file actual requests. Um, and my experience with the overwhelming majority of custodians is that, you know, they find um, Oprah to be somewhat stressful because there is that pressure between wanting to give records out but having someone in the de- in whatever department not wanting to give it to you or mm-hmm. either just or not being responsive to you. So a custodian has seven days to produce the records, but that she doesn't have them all at her desk. And so she has to have rely upon another government employee to get them. And if that person isn't so motivated, it puts, you know, pressure on the custodian. So I personally have not um, filed cases where we saw, you know, where we're seeking willful violation penalties. But um, that provision is there. Um, I don't know of courts that have imposed it, but the Government Records Council have done it a few times. Okay. Um, I'd like to to ask a couple of generic questions. Um, I'll just say both of them. One is, is the GRC versus going to court? And uh, the Governmental Records, I don't know the title, Governmental Records Commission? or The, the I, Government you'll, you'll, Records Council. <laughs> okay, thank you. The GRC versus going to the court. So there's two ways of pursuing Oprah remedy uh, mm-hmm. if you feel there's a violation. And the GRC has some serious flaws. So I'd like to, I'd like to ask you to distinguish between those two. Um, and I'll, I'll just leave it there. So please. Yeah, so if I had, if someone came to me today and said I wanted to challenge a denial, my number one piece of advice would be to go to court and not to the Government Records Council. So the Government Records Council, um, it's fine for someone that um, has no rush, <laughs> no immediate need for the record. Um, it's fine for those uh, for people that don't want to hire an attorney and, and they have no need for the record. If you're someone that wants the record within the next two years, um, and you, um, then you should go to court. And the fee shifting provision allows you to find an attorney, um, like me or others that will represent you in court. And, and it's not like other litigation where, you know, you want to avoid litigation and going to court because you might have to do depositions and, and it's drawn out process. It's, it's a quick, expedited process under the statute there's not any hearings or 
testimony or dis- or discovery you basically we you know we we draft a complaint and the requester signs it to verify that it's accurate um and the complaint basically just says this is what the request was and this is what the response was and it's unlawful and then we draft a brief and we submit it and then as attorneys we go to court and argue and then we get the record so the plaintiff the requester does not have to you know participate like they might in other litigation the problem with the GRC is is the the main problem is that they take an incredible amount of time to to process these so um you know you file a complaint and you don't even file briefing there usually you can but you don't usually and then in my experience the cases often take well more than a year and sometimes more than two years. I have um, only filed a handful of complaints there, and I think all of them have taken two years or more. And is um, that like is that because of defunding? Is that? And I also I, wonder. I also wonder if the quality of the results that you get there is there any difference between that and the courts? Um, I think that di- that funding might be an issue. I can't necessarily speak to it. You know, unlike a court that can just make a decision, they do have to meet in public meetings to make their decisions. So that necessarily means they could only, you know, meet once a month to make one decision and they have to approve it again the next month. That slows it down a little bit, but I, I think understaffing and, and volume of, of complaints might be the problem. I'm not sure. In terms of um, differences in decisions, I mean, I... Um, the main reason why I don't go to the GRC is just because of the uh, the slowness of it. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that the courts are um, they, they analyze the cases better. I think so. For example, the Supreme Court they take two years. They take two years, but they analyze it not even as well. That's really yeah. I mean, so here's the here's what I see as a problem. The judiciary is not subject to Oprah, right? So the decisions that they make do not pertain to them. So there's not this sort of, like, if they issue a decision that, you know, that a certain record is going to be subject to access, it's not personally impacting the judiciary and it's not going to be their records that are subject to access. If the GRC rules that something is subject to access, that means they're ruling that their own records that they hold would also be subject to access. So I I feel like that the GRC, um, that the decisions tend to be slightly more pro-agency than than courts necessarily would be. Not always, but um, sometimes. There are some issues. Yeah, they are an agency, so they're making decisions. They're making the case law that impacts that applies to them as well. Um, there are some issues that I think um, I have recommended people go to the GRC on, or that I would take there. So, um, of course, you you could take any case to the to the superior court, but I don't like to make, to file cases where the court would feel like it's so trivial. Um, so, you know, for example. The statute says you can only charge the actual cost of a, a CD. Um, and I see agencies all the time that will try to charge one or two dollars to put for a CD to put records on a CD. Well, the actual cost of a CD right now is probably like thirty or forty cents. If you look on mm-hmm. go to Staples, you can find there. You know, so that's something like they're they are violating the law. Do you, does a does do you really want to burden the court with a case over sixty to you know seventy cents? Um, I personally don't. So that's something that you could file a very simple GRC complaint about and have the GRC say, this is unlawful, stop doing it. And you, it will take two you years. Would, but <laughs> you would, yeah. yeah. 
but you wouldn't personally be involved in that kind of a case, but but you could see that that's a, a somewhat reasonable use of the GRC for someone. I, um, you know, I might, but in general, the GRC process is so simple that it really is designed for anybody, anybody to be able to do it. So if someone, you know, contacted me, I would probably just say, like, right. here's the form, fill it out, and then the GRC figures it all out on its own. Just okay. state on there that you think it's an overcharge. Um, you know, I, I have done a, a handful of cases with the GRC. Most of, they were all filed two years ago before I really knew that there was this time problem. Okay. Uh, the one thing that surprises me about fee shifting is that someone like Gavin, someone like uh, Patrick Duff, I believe you know who he is, mm-hmm. um, they are willing to do stuff pro se, which is being your own lawyer. And right. fee shifting doesn't work for pro se, which I find very surprising. I mean, it's yes, it's free to for, from their point of view to hire someone like you, but right. why... I, I, maybe you can't answer this, but I just find it surprising. Why would they not reimburse someone who is their own lawyer? Well, I mean, they could be reimbursed for the court costs, the, the litigation, the, the filing fee. But in terms of, um, are, I don't think either one of them, are they lawyers? No. So they're not even incurring attorney's expenses, just their own private time. So, uh, you know, that would be why. But even as an attorney, if I file an open request and I said I want to challenge this and I did my own work, I wouldn't I wouldn't be compensated either. Um, the courts and an attorney would say pro se effort is never the same as a skilled a trained attorney doing it. So Okay. But, All right, fair yeah. enough. Um so what determines what determines the fee that you get that you do get reimbursed? Do you just say uh, X hours and they just assign that to a number of Money per yeah, hour. so yeah, so the way it works is I bill my time um, like I do for any of my cases, any any work that I perform. I have a timekeeping system. I enter it in there, and in you know point ones of an hour and that sort of thing. Um, and then at the end of a case, um, if I you know, say it's a case where I win, the judge will say you're a prevailing party. You're entitled to fees. They usually will sign an order that encourages the parties to work together, and if you can't, then you file a fee application. So in most of the cases, I will go to the adversary and say, here's my bill of all my time. This is what the courts award me as an hourly rate. Um, so my total fees are $10,000. Let's negotiate um, so that we don't incur more expenses doing the, the fee application. And then we'll usually come to a number. Usually it's, you know, like a 10% discount or so. Um, and, and we just settle it that way and sign a, sign a settlement agreement or sign an order, consent order, saying that's the amount of the fees. Sometimes it, there's we can't settle it. Um, usually it's sometimes in the cases where the fees are larger because it was a lot, a lot of more legal work. Um, and then we, you file a fee application with the court, and basically that's explaining to the court, here's the work that I did, here's what the rates, the hourly rates that courts award me. Um, this is why you know this case took me a little longer than others. Um, and, and that sort of thing, and then the court determines what was a reasonable amount of time for that case. So sometimes the courts will say, "I think you, you know, I'm going to mark the bill down a couple hours because I think this took a little too long." Um, okay. Sometimes courts might award you different rates than other judges because they think a rate, uh, an hourly rate, is more reasonable if it's lower, or you know, it could depend on the area of the state. Okay. But that's the process you go through. 
at least half of the time, and sometimes I said a lot of my cases even before we go to court and have the judge, you know, rule that they're subject, that they violated Oprah, um, you know, I'll tell them what the fees are, and then the public body will meet and decide if they want to settle the case. The benefit of doing that is that um, then we don't incur additional time to do the fee uh, application. So right. writing the fee application takes me, you know, um, depending on the case, it could take me two to four more hours at least Got to it. do the fee application process, and then there's a motion fee and that sort of thing. Got it. Um, okay, so an unrelated question. Uh, I was I mentioned to you that I'm, I'm interested in the common errors that journalists and requesters just in general, I wonder if there's a difference, the common errors that you notice. And I, I committed one of them that uh, life just got in the way and I, I, you know, finally got around to saying I got a denial and it was too late. It was too yeah. late by that point. So that's one. So I think it's a 45-day window. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, that's the most important, um, you know, the most important thing to remember. As soon as you get a denial... Um, you have 45 days to do something about it. And so you need to immediately contact, uh, you know, contact me, contact another attorney um, to talk about the what the response was because, um, it, you know, it, you only have 45 days. That goes very quickly. It's a month and a half. Um, attorneys need time to be able to draft the complaint and to draft the, the brief and to get it submitted. Sometimes we'll, you know, sometimes you need to do follow-up or the re- the response is unclear or, you know, so it's important that just the second that you get a denial that you contact an attorney so that there's time to make sure that uh, you can get it filed in time. Um, in terms of common errors that people make in submitting OPA requests, um, the number one error I would say that people make is asking for information instead of records. And I and I see, I still see even journalists and you know more sophisticated requesters making this. Actually, attorneys sometimes are notorious at, at um, filing invalid OPA requests. Um, because attorneys tend to draft the request like discovery requests where you can just say, give me any and all records relating to blah, 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 uh, and you can't draft, draft an OPA request that way. So you have to make sure that you, you don't ask a question. You can't say, um, please tell me how many OPA requests you received last year. Instead, you have to think of, you know, what record would show that information or how could they how could I find that information out and so you know the answer to that question would be a request that says please give me a copy of all of your Oprah requests for last year and then you tally them yourself um, and then the second one is not identifying the specific records you can't as a general rule you can't just say give me the entire investigation file of Bob Jones or I want all records relating to that construction project. You have to say specific records that you want. Um, so, you, you know, sometimes this is challenging because you don't know as a citizen what records they even have. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes you might have to file more than one request to get everything because you, you know, you can think of some requests that might be within say, an investigation file. You'll say, okay, well, I know there's got to be like a police report, an investigation report, um, and witness statement or, you know, and then from there you can see what's referenced in those records and request more. But you have to make sure that you um, are, are identifying specific records and not just saying any and all records in this file. 
Um, one exception to that is that there are some types of records that you can request like a, a category of records over a specific period of time. So, for example, you don't have to know, if you want to know what litigation your town has settled in the past year, you don't have to know the matters that they settled or the specific case names. You can just say, I would like all settlement agreements uh, from January 1st, 2017 to December 31st, 2017, and that's sufficient. So there's some... Some categories where you could do that. You could say all, you know, all legal invoices for last year or all use of force reports for last year. Um, you know, there's just some things where you don't have to know the specific individual report. Okay. Um, I would like to bring up the topic of your experience with Gavin Rossi and Oprah Machine and the impact that you've seen with that, which is a, a website where people can do Oprah requests and the really excellent benefit of it is that the the dialogue between the requester and the agency is all there for you and that even the the document that they they that is the result of your request is automatically put on this website for anyone to see and also for searching purposes open machine i think has made a, a remarkable difference actually is starting to really impact the law itself and the biggest example that's happening right now is that we're starting to get pushback um, that bodies are simply saying we do not accept any requests at all from Oprah Machine, which is if you understanding the back end of Oprah Machine, a request on Oprah Machine is simply sent as an email. The only odd thing about it is the email the email address itself has like you know weird characters or whatever in it. So that it can, you know, the system can automatically hook it to a request. So I'd, I'd like to know. I mean, that specific issue is the big one that's coming up now. I, I think it's like pushing the envelope of the law in a good way. Yeah, I think um, so. I've worked with Gavin on a few cases. For um, I think the first one was a couple of years ago, and I think that he is, you know, a, a, a bright, intelligent thoughtful person and I have a, you know I've enjoyed working with him and I think his passion for um, bringing transparency uh, to the people and educating people about how to use Oprah and what their rights are um, is just really great like we need more of that and and we've always had John Path who is also amazing and so much of our case law and the good things about Oprah are due to John Path and and Gavin's sort of taking it in this different direction by building Oprah Machine which is you know uh, a platform where you can find you can see other people's Oprah requests and you can see the response to those requests. Um, you know, so that means that, you know, I've always said to agencies, if you just put your records online, you could cut down on the number of Oprah requests that you get. Um, and some agencies do a good job of putting so much stuff on there that it really eliminates a lot of their Oprah requests. Um, and other agencies don't. So now through Oprah Machine, people can just request a lot of those basic records and they're on there and then you can do a Google search uh, if you're just someone that's like, hey, I think I want to know uh, what, what are the salaries for my town, and they happen to Google it, they're going to see the list that comes up through Oprah Machine, and then they don't have to file an Oprah request. So I, I think it's, it, it serves the public. It also saves public agencies some time in responding to an Oprah request that's already been answered. Um, you know, as an Oprah attorney, I have been now taking several cases where the client came through Oprah 
they came to me because you know Gavin might have referred them to me or they knew about me in some other way. And when I said, you know, usually people contact me and say, I filed an Oprah request, it was denied, can you help me? I said, the first thing I ask is, um, you know, the information to run a conflict check. Then I say, can you send me the Oprah request? And lots of people have been sending me the link to Oprah machine. Now. I know. That's so um, cool. Yeah. And the benefit for that is is one of the, one of the um, tedious parts of doing this work is that I have to be able to attach uh, to the complaint the OPA request, the OPA response, and then any correspondence back and forth clarifying or objecting. And sometimes it's hard to get those from the client. Once they sign the retainer, they sometimes go MIA, and I'll be sending an email every day like, just a reminder, some, you know, there seems to be an email missing and I need it. Now with OPA machine, I can just download it all myself it's there and so you know it's it saves that amount of time too so it's it's convenient to practitioners it's convenient to requesters and i think it really serves the public and it's actually it is it has also exposed the the flaws or laziness or whatever it is of the agencies too like we get a lot of back end requests of wait a minute not back end you know support requests of this agency sent unredacted information that's got to be taken down, and then we start a dialogue. Gavin starts a dialogue with the agency, and they sh- they have to up their game because it's yeah. instantaneously in public. So it's been so interesting. Um, okay, I think I'd like to end with just running down like the major developments that you've noticed. Maybe a couple of the losses. I mean, you you seem to have a pretty good win win record where there hasn't been that many um, really bad developments, a couple here and there. But I'd be interested in just sort of the history of the major developments. The one that immediately comes to mind is John Pass' Supreme Court win, where where I don't think this is exactly correctly worded, but basically that metadata has been ruled to be itself a public record. So if we say, for example... Um, I want all the email, I'll call them logs, the email logs for the past two weeks, then that would give you the, the, the sender, the receivers, the subject, the dates, and then you can use those logs to determine which bodies and attachments you want to request. So it's a way of narrowing down what records yeah. exist and then what you request. So that's, that's one big, that's probably one of the bigger examples. So just the history of the past few years of, of the big changes in the OPRA law. Yeah, and and Pass versus Galloway, um, that's a case where it was a Supreme Court case, but yet I don't think that the holding was necessarily novel or shocking. What was shocking was that the appellate division had issued its ruling saying that 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 the email log, the electronically stored information, wasn't subject to Oprah because the statute expressly says that it is. So um, when the Supreme Court reversed it, to, in my mind it didn't really do anything other than correct a bad appellate division decision, but it didn't necessarily change the landscape because, you know, theoretically we've always been getting electronically stored information. Um, it, it, You know, I guess it just sort of clarified it and that this is one type of um, electronically stored information that we get. And you're right that the email log is very helpful, and I recommend that to people, um, you know, and, and it actually saves the agency time if they can just, because you can produce the log in seconds through Outlook, 
And then, you know, it saves them time rather than someone requesting, you know, I want all of your emails for 30 days, and then they have to produce the actual emails and, and comb through them. The log is just a really simple, quick way to produce it without, uh, and then the person can narrow their request from there. Yeah, um, actually, actually, before you go on, uh, just a few, uh, my last interview with Gavin about pushback that, that has been happening is that to someone requested two weeks of email logs, and they tried to charge that person twelve hundred dollars. Yeah, just we filed a suit lot. on that. Oh yeah, I filed a suit on that one. So, um, right, because what the agency tried to say, and they did this in Gavin's case too, he had requested um, against the attorney general's office, he had requested a couple of weeks worth of email email logs for a couple of weeks worth of emails, and they tried to suggest that it would take them, you know, hours and hours and hours to review these logs. And the court really didn't buy that. The court kept saying, but, but it's just a log. It doesn't have any, it's not the, the body of the email, it's just the subject matter. And the subject matter doesn't really, in most circumstances, reveal any sort of confidential information. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other, I would say the other big developments um, are around police record stuff, and that's still ongoing. So when I first started practicing OPRA in 2013, uh, the case law was this case O'Shea versus uh, the township of West Milford, and which said that use of force reports are not criminal investigatory records because the attorney general's guideline is a law that requires them to be made, maintained, and kept on file. Um, then in 2015, in one of my other cases where we were seeking a use of force report, and relying upon O'Shea, the appellate division decided now it changed its mind or it, it, it disagreed with the panel that ruled that way and that the attorney general's use of force policy isn't a law, so these records are criminal investigatory records and exempt. Um, and then we battled that uh, decision until 2017. So from during 2015 to 2017, there was this sea change where all of a sudden, um, agencies were being, police agencies were handing out hardly any records. Um, they were claiming all of them were criminal investigatory records. You couldn't find out any information hardly about deadly shootings, use of force. Um, and then, you know, we had our Supreme Court case in, um, in North Jersey Media Group versus Town, Her- Township of Lyndhurst in 2017, last summer. And the Supreme Court reversed and, and restored what it was before. Um, so that was this, this sort of rocky period where, you know, case law was one thing, it changed, and then we changed it back. Um, the, uh, you know, other hot-button issues are, are dash cams and body cams. So the Supreme Court is set to, you know, at any point, we're just waiting on a decision, issue um, an opinion in PATH versus Ocean County Prosecutor's Office, and that will determine whether dash cams are subject to OPRA. They've already ruled in, in our Lindhurst case that, they're criminal investigatory records because there's no statute, regulation, uh, or attorney general guideline that requires them to be made. In the PAP case, they're considering a new argument, which is if there's a local police policy or directive that requires it to be made, is that a law that would defeat the criminal investigatory records exemption? So that will be, you know, a, a big opinion that we're really waiting for, and it, and it will impact a lot of categories of records, not just dash cams. Do you feel um, relatively hopeful about that? Um, yeah, I feel pretty hopeful. I'm hopeful the oral argument went really well. So, you know, we're just we're waiting to see. But um, if the court were to agree with the appellate division, 
then it would be a, a really great win for transparency. Um, the other issue is body cameras, which hasn't really been litigated. I actually have a body cam appeal up on my screen right now that I'm working on. Um, and the law, is, the, the issues are slightly different for body cams. Um, some body cams are taken inside a home and there's privacy interests because they record inside a home or they record medical information because they're up close. Whereas dash cams are usually, you know, they're on a car so they're from a distance and on the street and, and streets are public places. Um, but the, the AG has a policy that if you have body cams, you have to use them, but then the policy simultaneously tries to exempt them. So, um, and our argument is that they can't exempt them. So that's, that's not litigated, but body cam videos in general are a very hot button issue, police videos. So, um, expect to see more of that litigation. And that's all police transparency. All those three major things that you just said are all police transparency. Right. Yeah. yeah, and police transparency is, in my opinion, um, probably like the most important transparency. Obviously, finances, money spending, that's very important too. Um, but like police transparency is is people's liberty. <laughs> um, and and people's who watches lives. the watchers? Yeah, it's people's liberty. It's their liberty and lives. Like the police have the, the power to um, arrest you and detain you and put you in prison. Um, or to take your life in certain circumstances. And so, to me, that's where we need the most transparency. So that's why we, we, you know, fight so hard. We, we litigated the Lindhurst case here. Um, when we won that case, I immediately, um, found, you know, filed on behalf of clients and, uh, pro bono an amicus brief in the PAP case that so we could participate and argue there. So the, the police transparency is what I'm most passionate about and what I've litigated quite a bit. Um, so, right. you know, I'm waiting for that PAP decision. Okay. So, my final question is, and I, this is certainly going to relate at least somewhat to these police uh, cases. Mm-hmm. Can you can you give a, a few good examples of how the cases that you have won have resulted in real-life consequences? And I'm thinking of Bill Brennan, I'm thinking of uh, I believe Charlie Cradiville got, uh, you know, revealed a very big incident with police in Middlesex County. Um, and so can you give some good examples of how what you have done has resulted in real-world consequences? Uh, yeah, so, and it's, it is with the police record issue. So you can generally now, anytime that there's a police shooting or police incident, you can log on to a newspaper's website and almost always see dash cam video um, of the incident happening or of the the response to it. And before our lawsuit, that wasn't the case. Um, In fact, immediately after the Lindhurst decision was decided last year, reporters started filing Oprah requests for all of the videos for all of these incidents for the past that had happened in the prior you know, two two year two or three years that where the case had been ongoing, and so there was this mass influx online of all these videos of incidents that had happened. So, and I, and I had some of those cases stayed, so we were able to get videos of various police shootings and videos of various DWI cases. You know, officers behaving badly. So, you know, that is one real life. The other is that. It, the Lindhurst case wasn't just about records. It was also about information. And you usually can't request um, information under Oprah 
except for there is a provision of OPRA, it's section, we call it section 3B, um, that, that says you get certain information, not records, but information about a crime. And so if a crime it has been reported but nobody's arrested, you just get very basic information. You get uh, what type of crime it was, where it was, and if there was a weapon. That way the public can be on alert that, hey, there was a rape on this street in this town and the person has a knife and they can, you know, know that this is happening and protect their safety. If an arrest has been made, then they have to disclose more information, such as who they arrested, um, information about the crime, which officers were involved in investigating it, um, whether there was any use of force, whether weapons were used, and that sort of thing. What the police argued for in, in our Lindhurst case, and then what I, every agency started following, was that if they shot the person, that that didn't trigger that disclosure request to identify who the investigating officers was because they argued shooting someone is not arresting someone, so that second disclosure requirement doesn't count, doesn't apply. Um, and, and that was the for two years, over two years, you couldn't if, if the police officer shot someone, you could not find out who the police officers were. Now, due to the Supreme Court's reversing that, um, you know, within 24 hours, you're, they're supposed to disclose. Um, a, a suspect was shot. These are the officers that were involved. And, and I think that that's very important to transparency. Okay. And if you wouldn't mind touching on the Bill Brennan case, which was another, not obviously not police-related, but that was another victory that resulted in some... Yeah, so that, um, to me... To me, it seemed obvious that you should be able to know that case was about um, an auction that was held by the Bergen County's prosecutor's office. Uh, the requester sought the names of the uh, bidders, of the, the successful bidders, the people that purchased the property, and their contact information. There was, you know, there was all this stuff going on about people alleging that some of the, the items that BCPO sold might not have been authentic, and BCPO disputed that. Um, so to me, it was pretty obvious that the public should be to, should be able to know who purchased government property. That's a, that's a basic um, check on making sure that there's no corruption and in, in, in a right. public auction. In a public auction of public property. Um, so that seems like the easy answer. But what, I filed an amicus brief on behalf of a client um, asking the court to um, make it clear uh, that when Oprah's privacy provision is invoked, so. That case was about the right to privacy. So Oprah has a privacy provision, and it says that, you know, agencies must protect a, a person's reasonable expectation of privacy. And what the courts have held is that when there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, it's not an automatic denial that you do this balancing test where you consider the privacy interest against the requester's need for the information and that sort of thing. So what had happened and what we explained to the Supreme Court was that there were all these circumstances where um, someone, an agency would just claim privacy and then the court would do the balancing test and because the court would, unless, because the court would usually think that the requester's interest wasn't sufficient, they would say that you don't get the records. And so what we asked the Supreme Court to do was to make it clear that you only do that privacy balancing test where there really is a reasonable expectation of privacy and that most of the time for, for mere addresses and, you know, things like buying government property, there's no reasonable privacy interest. And the court did what we asked it to do. And it did issue that opinion, which is really important, that, like, if there's no colorable claim of privacy, the inquiry ends there. You don't balance the interest because 
Oprah says you don't have to have an interest in requesters in, in records. So, you know, you, sh- you can't just create one anytime an agency wants to claim privacy. I asked about this a, a while ago, and you clarified it's not just that addresses are public if they're part of a you know public auction, which they should be, and that was what it was ruled. But it's also determining like the the agencies actually put themselves in in a position to determine how important the record is to the requester and what it should be. And I think the ruling went in this went the right way, which was it could just be for mere curiosity. For, yes, generally there's no protection for home addresses, so you shouldn't have to provide an interest. There could, you know, there could be some certain circumstances where there might be, but you shouldn't have to provide an interest because the whole purpose of OPRA is that you don't have to have a reason for requesting records. Uh, you can get them for curiosity. You can get them for any reason. And so, uh, what agencies were doing were raising privacy, ridiculous privacy claims that weren't colorable privacy claims. And then they'd get that balancing test, and if you didn't have a good enough reason, you couldn't get the record. So the court tried to put an end to that practice and said, you know, you have this threshold before you get to determine, before you even get to ask whether what their interest is and what their reason is. You have this threshold. You have to prove it's a reasonable expectation of privacy. Got it. Um, and, and that's really important. Okay, great. All right, well, that's all my questions. Thank you very much. If there's anything that you wanted to say before we leave, this is your opportunity. Um, Thank you for taking the time and doing this. Yeah, and thank you for having me. And um, I publish a blog, uh, www.njopra.com. And I try to, you know, if people email me questions, I'll try to answer questions sometimes there. Um, especially in the archives, I have a lot of basic how-to requests of certain type of records. And then I discuss new cases and new cutting-edge issues and changes to the law and that sort of thing. So um, people can um, contact me through that website or they can email me if they have questions at cgriffin at pashmanstein.com. Excellent. Thank you for talking to me, CJ. Thank you.